And that brings me down to the past. Uh, Nelson, you could go ahead and start recording here because the comments I have, I'd like to be included in the sermon. But uh, we do have the fast of the fourth month coming up as per Zechariah 8 on Thursday. And the fast of the fourth month <coughs> commemorated the breaking down of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, how that corresponds to the church today, and indeed it has to, because uh, Zechariah 1 through this section here are talking about the time just prior to Christ's return when the two witnesses and the remnant of the church rebuild the church, as Haggai, Zechariah 1 through 4, clearly show. And the problems that occurred in tearing down the walls of Jerusalem and the temple before have also occurred in the church. Uh, the walls, the protection of walls for defense and protection, and uh, Herbert Armstrong died, and he was certainly a defense and defender of, and, and a wall, in that sense, uh, to the church. And when he died, uh, others took over and quickly began to destroy and take away any defense that we might have. So the church then fell apart, and, well, the temple, uh, the destruction and burning of the temple is the fast of the fifth month, next month. So after the walls fell, the temple was burned, and I would say that it should be quite clear that the fire of Protestantism burned the temple down and finished destroying the church. I say finished destroying, there's still splinters and pieces and flotsam and jetsam left from that destruction. But the context here of Zechariah is very clearly written in that Haggai and then the first four chapters of Zechariah have to do with the two witnesses in the end time of feeding the church. And chapter 5 then uh, shows how the church would be taken away by, away by two unclean birds who set its uh, base back in Babylon. So the Picachas, I think, certainly fit in there, and they did take the church back into Babylon and into Protestantism, and its mouth was shut, even as Zechariah 5 says. I don't want to get into all the detail of that. We've gone over it before. But as a prologue to what I have to say today, and then in chapter 6 of Zechariah, uh, God was disquieted by these forces that are talked about here, and his anger was turned aside and his spirit quietened, by the one that went to the north. We won't get into all the symbolism there. But God obviously was upset and then quietened down. And then it goes through and shows that those who were in the captivity of Babylon, as the church has been over the past 70 plus years at this point, some of those who, uh, when it was destroyed, were left behind, uh, are mentioned here to be singled out <coughs> and to build the temple of the eternal. I'll skip on down to verse 15 of chapter 6. Uh, here is summarized the story of Haggai and of the first four chapters of Zechariah. It says, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the eternal, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the eternal your God. So a job is laid out here to rebuild the temple to, that God would stir people to come. And he's talking here to the leadership and to those who do come to do so. And tells them that they are to diligently obey and these things will come to pass. So I think that God has called us and brought us out into the area where this is to be done. And he has a positive attitude toward us. We need to comprehend and understand God's attitude so that we might better adjust our attitudes. Uh, God sees and has observed probably, give or take, 60 billion people on the face of the earth since the days of Adam and Eve. And there have been all manner of attitudes and uh, approaches to life and most of what God has seen has been bad. There are all examples of human existence on the face of this earth that have been decidedly negative. 
And yet God does not decry uh, how bad things are and will never survive. God addresses the issues at various times in history, and he addresses the issue here at the end time, because he has a particular work he wants done. So he has called upon a faithful remnant to come to diligently obey his ways, even as he tells Joshua in chapter 3, that he is to keep God's charge and his ordinances, and to follow his way, and all these things in the follow will happen. So he says that then again in chapter 6, and begins to give advice on where we are and what we need to do. So God, to get back to the thought, does not take a negative approach. His plan is to save mankind. He sent his son to the earth, that that process might be started, and worked out over a period of time. First the harvest of the first fruits and the first resurrection, to be the bride of Christ, to be there as, in that sense, a mother to the world, and those people are resurrected at the end of a thousand years, as clearly shown in Revelation 20. And they are then to teach them God's ways, and help them keep his charge and his commandments and his way of life, so that they can be a part of the kingdom of God. So God, all through the millennium and the great white throne judgment, is going to be a successful father, and he is going to turn all these negative attitudes that the world has had into something positive. Now, you and I need to consider this attitude of God and how he is going to turn things around and make them right. Because it is easy for us, growing up in a world such as we have today, to look at things from a negative standpoint. And indeed, if we have been, and truly we have been, the weak in the base of the earth, not the highly educated, not the highly competent, not the kind of people that you would normally pick out to do an important job. But God was confident enough in his ability to pull us out of this world and do something with us cause us to turn around and to serve him so that he might be glorified through weak vessels, that his power and his glory might be shown. So there was an express reason that God pulled out the kind of people that he did. Now it would be easy for us to take a negative view and look at each other from a weak and base viewpoint to point out our problems, our weaknesses, and indeed, they're there. That isn't hard when you take the weak in the base. It just isn't hard to see that problems would persist, that they would develop, that difficulties would arise when you're trying to transform something from nothing into something. Then there will be problems along the way. Now, we can either take God's viewpoint that he is doing something here, and he will make it turn out right and positive. And he would not have called someone like the Joshua of chapter 3, who obviously had problems and was a fire, a brand plucked out of the fire, was headed for a not a good end. And the people there are the same way, plucked out of the vomit, if you will, uh, and perhaps the fire. So, we aren't much to start with. Now, we can stay the way we are if we want to take a negative viewpoint and not change anything. And we can pull one another down and fail at what God has called us to do. Or, we can take more of a viewpoint that God has that he plans on transforming people from nothing into something. And he understands that it's a process. He understands the kind of people that he called, and he did it on purpose. Now, if we put down one that God called to pick up, clean up, straighten out, and use to build his temple, we are then working against God. 
Now, if we work against God, where are we going to end up, I ask you? Satan is working against God to try to destroy, to accuse God's people, to cause God's plan to fail. And at some point, God is going to stop that and cast him down and not let him do that anymore. He's going to take that action with Satan. What action will he take with us if we do the same thing? I think it's ironic in a way that God, I think, inspired, caused us to name our little village Anatot, which simply in the Hebrew means answer. And that was the answer we were looking for as a place, and I think I've seen many things since then, which indicate that that is the spot that God had in mind all along, and when the time was right, he showed it to us. It brought to me as a possibility. And from that point, it happened. But God knows exactly what he is doing. And he has a plan worked out. You and I need to be very, very careful that we do not work at cross-purposes to him. That we take on his positive attitude. But we see in here that he is taking people out of the swill, out of the vomit, jerking them out of the fire, and setting them aside for a special job that needs to be done. Now, they have to be prepared for that job in attitude, in obedience, and he said these things will be, if you will, obey diligently the way of God. Now, we have a danger of thinking things are not going as quickly as we would want, this was brought out in the sermonette. Uh, it brings to mind the passage about those who in the end time will say the Lord delays his coming. But things are not happening as fast as we thought they would. And they begin to beat their fellow servants. They begin to maybe cast blame and say, well, the reason God isn't blessing us yet is your fault. Or it's his fault. Or it's someone else's fault. It's so easy when things do not go well for us that we begin to blame one another and to put one another down. But we cannot do that, brethren. The only one we can legitimately blame is self. If we want to blame someone else for the troubles of the church and for the troubles of our own little group or congregation, instead of ourselves... We are barking up the wrong tree. Because you can't change someone else. You can only change yourself. And that's why we've gone over so many times how all the people, for the most part, at the end time, would claim to be Philadelphians and claim it was somebody else's fault, the Laodiceans. And that was essentially everybody but them. And therefore, nothing in the church overall is being done about Laodiceanism because everyone thinks he, individually, self, himself, himself, is a Philadelphian. And a Philadelphian doesn't have anything said bad about him, they say in Revelation 3, except that it does say he must overcome. So that means there must be something wrong with him. And one of the things is self-righteousness in saying, I am a Philadelphian instead of changing what is wrong with that individual. And the same principle can be applied to us in our little congregation. If we want to blame the others, nothing will get fixed. If we blame ourselves, we have a chance to fix it. So, what he does here in Zechariah, after he lays out through Agai in the first six chapters, with an encouragement to diligently obey, he lays out the plan for what he intends to have done. And then he changes the subject to uh, the problems that occurred during the 70 years of the original captivity and how people uh, did not truly obey God. They went from sinners in Jerusalem to being sinners in Babylon and didn't really change. So he addresses that here in chapter 7 and 8. 
these men went to pray before the Eternal. Uh, verse 3, And to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Eternal of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? The question being, uh, that in the time that they were in the 70 years captivity originally, they did fast over the destruction of Israel, of Jerusalem and of the temple. And he says, should I continue doing this? Now this is in an end time context. Let's grasp that because some people have trouble seeing it, I guess. But Haggai and Zechariah are very much end time uh, prophecies culminating in the return of Christ in chapter 14. So these are the very end time things, speaking of the era or the time of the two witnesses and laying out their story and that of the remnant with them, and then addressing the problems that are there. So, he says, should I be fasting these many years? And this is for us to understand. Verse 4, Then came the word of the Eternal of hosts to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land, and to the priests, ministry, and the people, just as in... Uh, uh, Revelation 11, where it says, leave out the Gentiles for the moment, address the people, the altar, and then the worship there, so the ministry and the people. So address the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, even those 70 years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? And when you did eat, and when you did drink, did you not eat for yourselves, drink for yourselves? That's part of the indictment of Isaiah 58, where it says you fasted for the wrong reasons. You need to be dealing your bread to the poor. And if you indeed do that, then you will be the healers of the breach. The breaches in the wall, spiritually at the church, and perhaps even physically to the church, to the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. We won't get into that at this point, because we want to deal with the spiritual here at the moment. Even in worldwide for most of our prayers for ourselves and the things we wanted and the blessings we needed, uh, whether it was individually or for the church itself, that it might be blessed and the work be blessed and so on. Uh, and they had us pray about the building funds and so on, the build, fine buildings and all the things that we prayed about. Were we God-centered or were we self and the work-centered? God wants us to become God-centered. That is the whole point that he's making right here. Verse 7, Should you not hear the words which eternal has cried by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities there round about her, when men inhabit the south and the plain, and I think that is easily translatable to the time when the former temple, the worldwide church of God, was inhabited, it was in prosperity, and the cities or the congregations around the nation and around the world were inhabited, uh, and that changed. The word of the Eternal came to Zechariah, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal host, saying, All right, now we've seen the destruction, and we're asking the question, Should we fast now? Well, obviously, I would think, when we are in such disarray and in such confusion throughout the church, that is a time to fast and to pray. It is a time to become God-centered, not to let up at all, and not to say, well, this thing's taking longer than we thought, and begin to accuse and blame one another or beat our fellow servants. It's the same thing. We accuse them, we get negative toward them, uh, we blame their attitudes or imputing motives, as Bill was saying in the sermonette. But what does God say about this time when things have come apart and when they have not yet been fixed? What are we to be doing? I think that this is a critical issue for all of us right now to consider. We say, well, we're not lined out. Nothing's going on at the moment, uh, at least nothing substantial, let's say. Uh, and we're facing the same problem that you have as a shepherd or a herder of cattle. When the animals are in a corral, 
They're not lined out, headed somewhere. They tend to mill about. They tend to get frustrated. Uh, the grass is greener on the outside of the corral, and they'll try to find a way through the fence or over the corral or out in some way because things must be better elsewhere or in some place. So they begin as sheep to listen here, listen there, do something else, break through the traces, try to figure out something on their own because we're not lined out, headed somewhere at the moment in a way that removes their frustrations. Now what does God tell us to do? This is a critical issue for us to consider today because both in this chapter and in the next one uh, he tells us what we need to be doing. Let's look at it. Verse 9. Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment. So in this time of fasting, in this time of trouble, he tells us what we need to be doing. In our relationships with one another, and relationships are the key. If we're to work together, to do anything, a work for God, then we need to be able to work together well and not be at odds with one another, not be putting each other down, criticizing, blaming, and accusing one another, and assessing blame as to what is going on and why. So execute true judgment. Be careful about implying motives to people. Be sure you don't jump to confusions or conclusions about what's going on when you may not have all the facts and you might be looking at those facts through your own perceptions and drawing conclusions that may not be completely true. Now, it seems true to you because that's the way you're thinking. But are you thinking like God thinks? See, as human beings, it's really easy for us to become negative and make statements like, well, things sure are bad around here. Or, boy, there's so much gossip. There's so much negativity. There's so much of this, so much of that. Now, you can take that view, and to one degree or another, you will be right. Because no matter how hard we try as human beings... Remember, we started out as the weak in the base, and God said he's going to transform us. So there are some changes that have to be made. And we can either take God's view of, this will happen, and I will bless you, if you will diligently obey, all these things will happen. So he leaves some contingency upon us doing our part, but he is ready, willing, and able, eager, to see this thing happen the way he has laid it out. The only fly in the ointment might be if we don't do our part, because he fully intends to carry through if we do. And he's laid the whole story out in a very positive attitude and said, this will happen if you will do your part. So he's encouraging us. He's strengthening us to do our part so that his will and his purpose might be accomplished. Now, Satan is trying to get in the way of that by pulling us away, and he does influence every last one of us to some degree. Uh, he is there in the world. He works on our human nature. God, through many, many scriptures, talks about his devices and how he works on us. Uh, he has more effect with some than others, and uh, we have to be sure that our minds and our hearts are right, lest he take advantage of us. There are many scriptures about that. Let us work toward having a positive attitude, because that's what God has about us as a whole, and therefore should be the attitude that we have one toward another. You know, events happen. And events essentially are neutral. Let's understand this. Uh, a water line breaks. A car has mechanical difficulties and quits for whatever reason. Now, 
That's just a thing that happens in the course of life. It may or may not be anybody's fault. If you've been riding the brakes on your car, then the brakes failing could be partly your fault. But if you're doing things right, mechanical things do wear out. They do eventually have problems. Even if they're maintained properly, they do wear out and problems occur. Now, we can, however, have a myriad explanations and attitudes toward why that happened and whose fault it was. I'm just taking a car repair or broken water line or whatever. It's a physical thing that just happens, which in that sense is neutral. It just occurs. But our reaction to it is paramount in importance. Do we assess the issue and say, well, these things happen, let's fix it. Let's do everything we can to make this work again. Uh, let's be positive about it, understanding things can go wrong, and fix it. On the other hand, we can say, well, this was somebody's fault. They didn't put the water line together right in the first place. They didn't bury it deep enough. They buried it too deep. They didn't use glue. They, you know, we can find all kinds of reasons why that event, which is, again, neutral, occurred. We can assess blame. We can get in a bad attitude about it because we don't have water for an hour or a day or two or three or whatever and start picking at people. Or we can say, well, here's the problem, whatever the problem may be, what can we do to jump in there and get this fixed? How can I help? What can I do? In some cases, we might can pray, depending on the circumstance of what's gone wrong. We might can use physical labor. We might encourage those who are laboring or whatever. But we can have a positive attitude. It is a problem. It did occur. You can sit around and moan about it and assess how bad things are around here, or we can do something about it. And the same is true if we perceive that somebody may have done something wrong or might be thinking of doing something wrong or whatever about them, we can see what we consider a fault or a weakness. And we can jump on it and we can moan about how bad they are or how bad things are around here is the general statement. It's kind of like they say being the greatest authority on the face of the earth. You can't get specific because we don't have specifics, but they say is our authority for stating what we state. It's a dominance authority used. And we can do the same thing with people. We must be very, very careful of that, and that's what God says here. To execute true judgment, because he is positive, and if we are negative, and we may have been that way all our lives, we may have had parents that tended to be negative about things, or we may have been in bad situations, and our whole approach to life is negative. Well, brethren, that's what conversion in the Spirit of God is. Because the Spirit of God is not negative. It is positive, and it produces positive fruits. Now, if we are uh, producing the works of the flesh and the attitudes of the flesh, then we are not truly walking in the Spirit, but walking in the flesh. So if we find we're impatient, or we're angry, or we're not uh, showing love and concern and, and those things with people, uh, then we are not motivated by the Spirit. We're still being motivated by the flesh. And we have to change that attitude. God is not going to have negative nannies, ninnies in his kingdom. The bride of Christ will have to be positive. She will have to see her job. She will have to qualify herself for the job. And she will go in wholeheartedly seeking to help straighten the family out all the people that are left alive when the tribulation and the seven last plagues have ended. Now, some people might look around and say, well, the world's destroyed. We might as well just go ahead and finish it off. This will never get fixed. 
And then you have those who say, with the power of Almighty God, and me being God now, we're going to fix this whole world. We're going to do it right. Now, that's got to be the attitude of the bride. If we don't have that attitude yet, then we're not yet qualified to be part of the bride. You can can excuse yourself and say, well, I've always been kind of negative. I've always been turned off by things. Well, no. You have to change that attitude. We all do. And every one of us is affected by it to one degree or another. Some, by personality, just tend to be negative. Others tend to be kind of positive. And some very positive just by nature or by upbringing in nature and nurture. And well and good if they are, unless they get self-righteous about it and how good their attitude is. That's another pit. But the ones who are negative have got to change and become positive. So that it's true judgment and not our opinions or our negative input based on our experience with human beings and how they're bound to be true. Or if there's smoke, there's fire. Oh, that's just the way people look at things. In some cases that may be true. In some cases it's, it's not true. But we have to be very careful about the judgments we make. And coupled with that, he then says, show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. So be sure that the judgment you make on somebody and your approach to them is good and true and positive. This doesn't just mean, well, it's the truth. It did happen. And therefore, I'm making this judgment. No. The thing is to try to sort out and not impute motives to people, not falsely accuse, make sure you don't do that, and then if something turns out to be true, you're to show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. This is what we need to be working on now. This is in the middle of prophecy. This is in the middle of God talking about what he's going to do with the two witnesses and the remnant of his people and how we ought to be operating today. If we don't see things going as fast or in the direction we think they ought to be right now, we don't see God's answer the way we wish it to be, then we have something here that God says we need to be doing. And we can sit around and complain about each other until the cows come home if they do. And it won't do any good. So even if we do find a true fault, what are we to do? God's glory is to cover it. Men like to uncover sin. Men like to find sin and fault with one another. Now God's whole desire for the whole earth is to cover all sin. To move it as far as the east is from the west and never bring it up again. That's why he sent Christ to this earth, was to begin the process of removing sin. He's going to remove Satan, and he's going to remove sinful men. And he is going to have a universe that has no sin in it, ultimately. So, we are working at cross-purposes to God when we accuse people of sin, when we try to find sin, and when we repeat sin, if it indeed exists, to each other. That isn't showing mercy and compassion our brother. If we do find something is wrong, we're supposed to do everything we can out of mercy and compassion to hide that, to let it not be known, to not cause embarrassment to the person or people involved. That is our goal and our purpose. Instead, we have to tell it. We have to vent about how bad things are around here. We want to get the idea across that things are bad. Now, what's wrong with that approach? It doesn't help anything. It doesn't fix anything. All it does is increase the perception that things are bad. And the more you increase the perception that things are bad, the worse they're going to get. You can repeat something over and over that's negative, and people will tend to live up to it. Or you can put it aside and talk about how good things are around here. Because there's an awful lot of good 
an awful lot of people have changed and they're doing better than they used to do. They have better attitudes maybe than they had 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. They've made some improvement. So are we going to allow that improvement? Are we going to have a positive attitude toward them and say, hey, you know, so-and-so's did pretty good. They did something pretty good. They had a really good attitude the other day. And build them up and help them and increase the perception of positivity so that things indeed do get better around here. It is a matter of perception. Let's say things are the way they are around here, okay? They are what they are. It is what it is. It is not all good. It is not all bad. It is what it is. But our perception of it and the perception we spread to others is either going to cause it and help it to get better or it will cause it and help it to get worse. When you spread negative things, it puts people in a negative mode and attitude and makes them feel worse, and then they repeat how bad they feel to others. So any time we have negativity or venting or however you want to justify it, it makes things worse. So the perception of how things are can be gets worse and things get worse. But if we look for the positive, and we minimize and try to hide or get rid of, I don't mean sweep it under the rug, I mean conceal it, uh, show mercy and compassion. There is a difference. It's not like we're trying to hide our problems. No, we're trying to overcome our problems. But the more we point out each other's problems, the harder they are to overcome. The more embarrassed and ashamed people get. So, why keep pointing them out? Why not forget them, as God does, and move on and be positive? This is something we have to do. Now, God knew. He knew with no doubt in his mind that things would be the way that they are in the church. And he spewed it out of his mouth on purpose with the intent that we might repent that we might turn to him with our whole heart and turn to each other with our whole hearts because, as I've said many times, and the scripture reiterates many times, God will judge us eternally based on how we treat one another and how we judge one another. And mercy and compassion will be shown to us in the exact measure that we show mercy and compassion to each other. So God knew he was taking a bunch of misfits. He knew he was taking the weak in the face. He knew we weren't perfect. Oh, well, we discover these things ourselves. But these people aren't perfect, and that one certainly is weak in base and has problems. Boy, what a revelation. No, it's not a revelation at all. I speak in sarcasm. God knew it, and we ought to know it. And if you look at yourself, you don't see any shining example of perfection either, do you? Well, so are we going to be negative toward each other and put each other down and make us worse, worse and cause each other to fail because of our negative perceptions that we increase and cause to happen? Or are we willing to overlook those things, show mercy and compassion, and find ways to build one another up and find good in us. What would be wrong with going around saying, boy, things are good around here. Things are great around here. You know what? They are. It's a whole lot better than it is in the ghetto. It's a whole lot better than it is in Hong Kong. It's a whole lot better than it is anywhere you want to name on the face of this earth, except where a few people might be following God's ways. Things are a whole lot better than they are out of the world as a whole.
And they may be a whole lot better in some respects than they are in churches as a whole, even within the church, to the degree that we are adapting and adopting what God is doing, adopting what God is saying here. It's all about attitude and how we approach it. Are we merciful and compassionate, or are we picking at one another? We can make it better or worse. So anybody that says things are bad, or he is bad, or she is bad, or whatever, they're making things worse, not better. Oh, my, 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 what a revelation that so-and-so might have a problem, or that the church might have a problem, or Daryl Henson is the leader, it's all his fault, might have a problem. What a revelation. Boy, you are brilliant if you come up with that. No. I think that all should be so easily understood. But all of us have a certain amount of the Spirit of God in us, and we're trying, and we're working at being what we ought to be, and trying to control our attitudes, I guess. Hey, let's give each other some credit. God doesn't want us tearing each other down. He wants us to be sharpening each other, and helping one another, and strengthening one another, rather than weakening, weakening each other by putting each other down. Now, he knew this problem would be here, or he wouldn't have written these words. So he says, when you find yourself in the end time, and the work of God is about to get ready to be started, the, the final fulfillment, the final temple to be built, then here is what you are to do. Be sure that you have good and right judgment and show mercy and compassion to each other. So if you wonder what we ought to be doing now, well, living up to this would be a really, really good start since that's the advice he gives. Let's go on. What else does he advise? Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. Be sure that they are not put down, uh, ignored, not helped, doesn't he say in Isaiah 58, when you fast, give your bread to the hungry, and be outgoing and concerned for others, not just self. So, yes, we are to show mercy and compassion, and then we are to be sure that those who might not have much, either financially or spiritually or mentally or whatever their problem might be, that makes them uh, spiritually or physically uh, in need. And that's what this category of people is here. People who do not have everything or in need. They don't have a husband or a wife, maybe. They don't have a father. Uh, they may be new. They may not know very much yet. Or they may be poor. And they may need help. He says, don't oppress them, but take care of them. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we find ourselves in this position, and we should be fasting this fourth month and fifth month and seventh and tenth, uh, this is the advice God gives us. Here is the reason the spiritual temple was torn down. Why? The church, Jerusalem, had its walls broken. It's because of attitudes toward each other and selfishness. Laodiceanism, which in attitudes that were not right toward each other, God interpreted as being attitudes toward him. Because he says, the way you treat each other is the way I say you treat me. If you don't have a special relationship with God whatsoever, apart from how you treat your brothers and sisters in the church. You do not have that. You may think you do, but you don't in Christ's own words. Because he says, I will think of you just like you think of them. So don't, in your heart, in your mind, in your emotions, let yourself imagine evil or evil things or negative attitudes against your brother in your heart, not not even considering what you might say. Don't even let it be in your heart. Because if it's in your heart, eventually you're going to say it. Because that's what the heart does. Or what the mouth does is speak what's in the heart. Sooner or later.
what God wants us to do. But he says, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law. We've been hearing a lot about the law in Psalm 119 the last few weeks. The law of God is the basis of love. And without keeping the law of God, which is loving your neighbors yourself and loving God with your whole heart, uh, you don't have love. That's what commandment keeping is. It is the love of God. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. The commandments regulate human relationships with God and man. That's what they're there for. So, we got to hear the law. It is the way of love. The words which the eternal of hosts has said in his spirit by the former prophets, therefore came a great wrath from the eternal of hosts. And we had that wrath come down on the church, and now we have to be fixing it, keeping his commandments and obeying diligently, as he says here. Obey what? The commandments. Because that will cause us to show mercy and compassion and not oppress anyone because we're loving our neighbor, however bad they may be, as ourselves, trying to do everything we can to help them, not put them down or blame them. Are we getting this, brethren? This is what we need to be doing right now. Since they cried, and I would not hear, verse 13. You want to know why God doesn't answer our prayers the way we'd like him to? Why these things haven't changed? Why we haven't had the healings we would like? Why we may not have had some of the blessings we want? Some of the many blessings that God promises when he starts the latter temple? Because we're not doing verses 9 and 10. And we tend to do verse 11 and 12. That's why we need to do our part. So he says, I scattered them with a whirlwind in verse 14. And he was jealous in chapter 8 of Zion with a great jealousy and was jealous for her with great fury. So God did not want to see his people put down and accused. He did not want to see them destroyed. But he caused it to be done because of our attitudes. Thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Eternal, hosts, there shall yet, old, there shall yet, it will happen, old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, the church, and maybe physical Jerusalem. And every man with his staff in his hand for very age. Uh, thus says the Eternal, hosts, if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people, in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Eternal? So that's verse 6. Uh, he says, we need to have this in our mind as to what will happen, and it be marvelous in his eyes. And he says, he'll save his people and gather them, verse 7. That's what he says in Haggai. And I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So he tells us then in verse 9, thus the Eternal says the Eternal of hosts, let your hands be strong, you that hear, in these days. Which days? These days that this context is speaking of. We are to have strong hands to do what God wants done. Uh, these words that were written by the mouth of the prophets. These prophecies were read in Haggai and Zechariah, specifically here, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the eternal host was laid that the temple might be built. So God is beginning to lay that with a few people. He's going to call remnant to finish it. For before these days, there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beasts. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set all men, every one, against his neighbor. So God in the church has set the splinter groups and the individuals against one another. There is essentially no peace in the church. And we were gathered together, I think, by God, to overcome this problem, to learn to live in peace one with another, to establish peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace. Negativity, backbiting, gossip, cutting, trying to see faults or... or uh, putting emphasis on false that we maybe do find, because they may truly be false, but 
talking about them and emphasizing them doesn't help overcome them. You've got to fix it. So God caused this to happen. He says, I set all of you against one another. Now what are you going to do about it? Are you going to show love one to another and mercy and compassion and take care of each other? Or are you just going to go ahead and war? He says, but now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the eternal host. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. So he's going to turn it around. It shall come to pass that as you were cursed among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel and church, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So we are not to become weak. We are not to become undecided. We are not to give up. We are to be persistent, as we heard in the sermonette, and to move forward. But it's all about relationships. How we treat one another uh, will affect and define our relationship with God. That's why he tells us to diligently do these things. Uh, I'm going to skip on down here to verse 16. He gives us again direction when we're in this mess that we're in, what to do, just like he did in chapter 9, verses or 7, 9, and 10. Here down in verse uh, 16 of chapter 8, he does the same thing. These are the things that you shall do when you find yourself in the position we're in today. Speak to every man the truth to his neighbor. Now, we can justify speaking evil by saying, well, this is true. This isn't, this isn't wrong. Well, it may be true. But should it be repeated? Should it be shouted from the rooftops? Or shall we show mercy and compassion one to another? It means don't lie to your neighbor. Don't provide false witness. In other words, love your neighbor. And speak truth. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. We have gates on our property. We are to have truth, live by truth, and judge truthfully, and we are to live in peace. Now God, he says, set every man against his neighbor up in verse 10. And now he wants us to fix that. We have a responsibility. We have an obligation. We have instruction here. And in fact, we have a command. That we are to create peace out of the turmoil that God set in the church by causing division and people to be against one another, he tells us to fix it. How do we fix it? Well, we show mercy and we show compassion, as we just read. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. Almost the same words that we just read in those other verses. Don't let negativity dwell in your heart. Don't let sin or mistakes be remembered in your heart. Put them out the way God puts them out. God is going to, at some point, put us in a position where we do not remember the past. It will never be mentioned again, he says. We'll move forward in love throughout eternity in the universe. But human beings and Satan like to keep sin, negativity, mistakes, faults, and problems right in the forefront rather than being positive about it, and then go around with an attitude and mumbling about how bad things are around here. Now, if the shoe fits, wear it. Do something about it. I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just saying, this is what God tells us to do. This is his instruction. We can either listen to that, or we can say, well, Daryl's talking to me, or he's talking to so-and-so, or whoever you think I might be talking about. No, I'm talking about the overall approach of the church and mankind to each other and to God. He tells us to create peace within our gates. That means we start at home. We learn to live with one another in love, kindness, 
mercy and compassion and not talk negative about each other. That's what he commands us to do, to have peace at our gates. Now, do we have peace? Yes. Compared to a lot of places, it's very peaceful. Could we have more peace? Yes. Does it make peace when we point out faults and problems? No. It creates negativity and bad attitude and discouragement is what it creates. So even if something is there that's not perfect yet, it doesn't do any good to keep pointing it out over and over. What good does that do? Go fix it. <laughs> Love your enemies, in fact. If somebody mistreats you, do something nice to them. And I don't mean out of sarcasm or whatever. We're here to gain our brother. We're here to actually create peace. Not to do it uh, just because, well, God said do something good for him, so I'll do this. And he better take it right. That's just a totally wrong and negative attitude. Peace means there is truly good feeling between people. And if there is bad feeling, then we need to do what we can. Be as nice to people as we can possibly be. Not out of self-righteousness. Not out of judgment. But in order to cause peace. And not let any imagination or thoughts of evil be in our hearts against our brother. We got any of that? We've got to get rid of it. Brethren. We have to repent. We have to overcome. Now, I'm not condemning us because we're not perfect yet. We're not. And we all have our faults and our problems. But we are here to overcome them and to help each other with them, not put each other down. And love no false hope. We are to, you know, somebody might swear on a stack of Bibles that this is true about somebody. No, you're not to love a false hope or a false uh, accusation or whatever. In fact, most accusations need to be put aside. For all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. Now, if we will do the things that he's telling us to right here, he says he will turn these fasts that we are doing because of the destruction of the church into feasts of joy and gladness. Therefore, love the truth and peace. So, we have the truth. Let's follow the truth. We may not have it all, but we'll learn more as we go. We keep working at it. But we have a great deal of truth. And we're to love it and peace. If you're going to have peace in your gates, you have to work at it. You have to make it. It doesn't come automatically. War is automatic. Hate is automatic. Putting down negativity is automatic. It's just human. It's just our nature. Well, we have to walk in the Spirit. And instead of loving to make war, loving to put people down, being curious, wanting to hear the latest dirt on whoever or whatever it might be, we have to create peace by hiding or covering, not hiding, but covering sin and not letting it be known, protecting people. Instead of telling the latest, we shut people up. As I said last week, we cannot be enabled. If somebody wants to talk negative, shut them up. Don't let them do it. Either walk away, change the subject, or tell them if we're not talking about that, let's find something positive to talk about. You may not be an aggressive type, and that might be harder for you to do. But God tells us to do it. We are not to be in here for somebody who is in a bad or negative attitude. Because we then become just as responsible as they are because we're enabling it, we're letting it happen, we're not stopping it. We are not creating peace by the way we react, but we are allowing warfare to spread. That's what God tells us to be doing, and that's what these fasts are about. They're, they're about the church being in a spiritual mess. And God tells us in these two chapters what we need to do about it. So, 
you know, well, we don't have anything to do. We're not building this. We're not building that. We're not doing something else or whatever you think we ought to be doing. And some of you may just be criticizing what is being done by this leadership. That can happen, too. Well, we can sit around and bitch and complain and moan if we want to. But I'll tell you what, we won't be part of the bride of Christ unless we change that attitude somewhere along the line and become positive and helping make peace rather than helping destroy the peace. Well, God gives us things here. The wall of Jerusalem, the church is torn down. The temple has been burned. And this fast coming up on Thursday is about the walls of the temple being torn down and the fact that they're not there to protect the church. And we need God's protection. We need the walls to be built back and to be healthy healers of the breach, as Isaiah 58 clearly shows us. That's what the fasting is to do, is to fix the problems, not moan about them and enumerate them and dwell on them and talk about how bad things are, but to do our part to fix it and to have a positive attitude. I am tired of negativity. I'm tired of my own negativity. I try to stop myself, and if I hear people being negative, I'm going to try to do what I can to help turn that around and not listen to it. Just don't need to hear it. You don't need to hear it either. Because all it does is pull us all down. And we're not here to be pulled down. We're here to be picked up. Now, I was wanted to get into Psalm 120 and 21 today. Uh, but I've stayed on this so long. I guess I don't have time really to go there. But we'll find that the same things we're talking about here, the trouble and the peace that is to come, is enumerated there in those next chapters of the Psalms. So I'm going to include this uh, sermon in the Psalms because when we pick them up again next time, uh, we'll see that the emphasis right there fits perfectly with what we've been talking about today. So brethren, let's approach this fast uh, positively. None of us love to fast. We don't like to fast. It's hard on our bodies. Not something that's any fun. But the way the church is today is not any fun either. And if we will do the things that God tells us to do, He says, These things shall you do. If we do these things, we need to come back and review these scriptures here in Zechariah 7 and 8 pretty regularly to be sure we're doing what God says to be doing during this period of time. And these fasts are there to remind us of that. Rather than just saying, well, this is a fast about the walls being torn down, I wanted to review, we've been through this before, but I wanted to review the context of why they've been torn down, why the church is in the mess that it's in, and what God expects us to be doing about it. Now, I can't, you can't fix another part of the church. We can fix what is within our gates. So, let's fast. With the idea in mind, walls have been knocked down, and we're defenseless before Satan and Babylon around us uh, without God's Spirit. We need to call on Him to help us, to strengthen us, to heal us, to fix us, to fulfill these promises that He has made. But we need to be sure that in doing so, and asking Him to do those things, that we have set ourselves and committed to do our part, which we have spent the majority of the sermon on, is what God expects us to do to make peace within our gates. We have a responsibility, and that's the only place we can fix is our own gates. You are the gate of your own personal mind, and us as a group within our gates. Those gates may include people that are not within the physical gates yet as part of the congregation. But we, we have the physical thing of our very own development that we need to be sure is a peaceful, a good, and a right place that puts forth an example to anyone who might see. And we are transforming ourselves to have a positive attitude that God needs to set a positive example in life to the world. And if he called us here to do this, then he thinks we can get it done. And he expects us to follow through. 
So if we have our little sense and we have our little attitudes, our big ones, we need to begin to truly seek God and do something about it and fix our personal relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church. Because that is God showing mercy and compassion upon us. It's how we treat one another. This is the love of God. That we treat each other as we would be treated. That we keep the commandments, which are an expression, or to divide the love of God. So, peace can only come when there is a positive, right attitude of one brother to another. If you have grudges and attitudes and remembrances and all those things that you harbor in your heart and mind, God says here, they have to go. You can have no evil imagination or thought of your brother and sister of the church. Give them the same thing God gives you. New start every day. A new start includes forgetting what happened yesterday and six months ago and moving forward. We can do that. God promises us that these fasts will occur peace, cheerfulness, and joy. So let's close in on that note today.